0: Let's pray and ask God to meet us in the Word this morning. I love this book of Isaiah, Lord. Thank you for the weeks, the months we've had digging into it. We're, we're getting close to the end here, and we've been grateful. I've been, I've been grateful, Lord, how you've been teaching. And would you come and do it again today, I pray? I ask for wisdom ask for a powerful work of your Holy Spirit in my heart and each of our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would bring great glory to Jesus Christ because of what happens in this place now through your word. So unleash your power and come and work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. The Bible teaches uh, many different places that the moment you turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you enter into war against none other than Satan himself. It's very powerful to think about it. The moment you become a follower of Jesus, you enter into war. You, if you're following Jesus Christ, you're at war against Satan. And he's doing all that he can to destroy your faith in Jesus Christ. That's his intention. That's his plan. To destroy your faith in Christ. Now sometimes... Uh, his attacks are really obvious. Okay? Like he wants you to dis- disown Christ, he wants you to deny Christ, he wants you to commit adultery. So there's really obvious temptations that come and you know exactly what's going on. But the Bible also says that there's times when it's not so obvious. When it's devious, when he's deceiving us. When he's trying to tempt us in ways we, we wouldn't even know he's, we're being tempted. Like Paul said, Satan can actually appear like an angel of light. You've all, you know, probably all of you have read that verse, but have you thought about that? I mean, that Satan could actually appear as an angel of light to someone? So if he has that kind of power, if he can be that deceptive, then how's it going to be possible for us to not not be duped, right? I've got some good news. There's a book in print right now that you can read, and if you study it carefully, it will expose every deception that Satan will ever bring your way. Did you know that? Okay, you're holding it if you've got a Bible in your hands, all right. It's this book right here. Okay, it's in print still today. Stood the test of time. This is God's word. This has always been published, right, forever. But God, in this, in the Bible, in his kindness, one of the things that he's done is to help us to see the different deceptions that Satan uses so that when they come our way, we can see through them and not be taken in by them, not be duped by them. And the reason I mention that is that that's exactly what God does in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. I thought we might do the whole chapter this morning and but I just couldn't bring myself to finish Isaiah yet. And these four, first four verses, just they, they deserve a sermon on their own. Probably every verse in the Bible does. But anyway, so verses 1 through 4, Isaiah 66. Let's turn there. And if you need um, uh, a Satan's deceptions exposing volume, then go ahead and raise your hand and we'll bring one to you, hand it out to you so that you can follow along with us. Isaiah 66. Um, in the Bibles we're passing out, that's page 625. So go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 66, focusing on verses 1 through 4 this morning. Now, to figure out what's going on in this passage, we've got to be clear on what time period um, Isaiah is dealing with here. What, What time period does this passage cover? And you can see that if you read verse 1 carefully. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, what is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? Now, what that shows is that Isaiah is talking about a time when Israel is going to be building the temple, building God's house, right? This is the time when Israel is building the temple of the Lord. So, when is that? Okay, a little bit of history on the temple. You know that um, Solomon built the temple hundreds of years before Isaiah wrote. So the temple was there, and for the most part during those ensuing years, Israel was turning their backs on God. And God, in great patience and mercy, kept sending prophets to Israel to seek to turn Israel back to God, and Israel refused again and again and again. And finally God had to, in his justice, bring punishment upon Israel. So in the year 606 B.C., Babylon came and invaded the promised land destroyed the temple, absolutely devastated it, burned down Jerusalem, slaughtered thousands of, of the people of Israel, and took the rest in chains uh, as slaves back to Babylon. But, 70 years later, just as God promised, he opened doors, changed people's hearts so Israel could go back to the promised land. He changed Cyrus's heart. Cyrus said, let's let all these slaves go back to their, their, to their homeland. And so Cyrus sent all the slaves of Israel back to the promised land and not only sent them back, but he funded the rebuilding of the temple. And so the time period that Isaiah is covering in this passage is the time after the exile has ended when the the temple's being rebuilt. So he's dealing with the nation of Israel at that time. And God knows that at that time, during this time after the exile, as they're rebuilding the temple, he knows that during that time, Satan is going to be deceiving many in the nation of Israel. And so God wants them to have this passage here so that they can read it and see through the deception and be free from the deception. So that's what's going on in this passage. So how will Israel be deceived during that time after the exile? Let me summarize it this way, and then I'll show you where that's in the passage. Satan's going to be deceiving them, and and many of them are going to fall for it, into thinking that God would look with favor upon them because of, quote-unquote, spiritual activity that they're doing, even though their own hearts are far from God knowingly far from God, uncaringly far from God, distant from God. They they think that that God's going to look with favor and love and goodness upon them because they're doing these quote-unquote spiritual activities even though their own hearts are far from God. Now let me show you two different ways that they're doing that. One is in how they build the temple. Look at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things, heaven, earth, any house, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Now that word look is a really important word that you want to underline in your Bible. It, it means not just looking like knowing, but it means looking with favor, looking with love, looking with care, favor, love, care, grace. So this is the one to whom I will look with favor and love and care. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Okay, so what do we learn from these two verses? After Israel comes back from Babylon, they're rebuilding the temple, so she's doing seemingly spiritual activity, but we can also see from these verses that their hearts were far from God. Because they were not humble. They were not contrite in spirit, which means brokenhearted for their sin. They were not trembling at God's word. This is the word of God. This is awesome. Their hearts were were far from God. And so they were still thought, though, that because they were rebuilding the temple, that God was impressed. He was going to look with favor upon them. And so what God has to say is, no, that's not who I look upon with favor. Because they're doing spiritual activity, they thought that that would make up for the distance that they had between them and God. So there's a deception. Thinking that God would look with favor upon them for their spiritual activity, even though their hearts were far from God. That's one way it happened. The second way it happened was how they offered sacrifices. This is in verses 3 and 4. Now verse 3 is, is a astonishing verse. Not easy to understand, but if you get the context, it makes it easier. So verse 3 is talking about how Israel was offering sacrifices to the Lord, burnt offerings, which God had commanded. But you have to understand that they were offering these burnt offerings with hearts that were far from God, uncaringly distant from God. And God says how he views sacrifices their offering with hearts that are uncaringly far from him. Look at what he says. He who slaughters an ox, that's burnt offering, that's what they're supposed to do, Israel, Old Testament. He who slaughters an ox with a heart far from God, is what he's saying, is like one who kills a man. You take your ox to the temple, you offer the burnt offering before God, but your heart is knowingly, willingly, uncaringly far from me. It's like you just found some guy and slit his throat. Shocked? Okay. Keep going. He who sacrifices a lamb. Okay, again, this is what the Old Testament called for, bringing lamb sacrifices, sin offerings. But if you do that and your heart is far from God, you're like one who breaks a dog's neck. You okay, know and try to figure out what does that mean, and people aren't really sure, but one commentator said it very well could be that that was a way that they worshipped the Babylonian gods. They would offer up dogs, break their necks, burn their, burn their bodies on the altar towards, for Babylonian gods. You'd never offer a dog as a burnt offering to God. That's not how it worked. But so probably that's a form of Babylonian idolatry. So what he's saying is you bring your lamb to the temple as a burnt offering, and your heart's far from me, that's idol worship. It's like worshiping an idol. That's how I view it. He who presents a grain offering. Okay, you read about grain offerings in Leviticus. Grain offerings, bringing before the Lord. But if you do that and your heart is knowingly, uncaringly far from God, you're not humble, you're not broken for your sin, you're not trembling at his word, you don't even give a rip, you're just here doing your religious duties. That kind of a grain offering is like one who offers pigs blood. Now, if you're in touch with the Old Testament, you know that Pigs were unclean, right? You wouldn't eat any pork. You would never pour out pig's blood on God's altar. That's an Old Testament thing. God wanted the nation of Israel to be distinct, so He said, Here's one thing I want you to do. That pigs are unclean, right? So can you feel this, the shock of Israel reading this? You present a grain offering, it's like you're offering pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, okay, the Old Testament called for that. But if you do that and your, your heart is far from God, you don't care about God, it's like you bless an idol. That grain offering, I mean, that, that frankincense offering memorial before the Lord, it's like you're bowing down before Moloch, God's saying. These people who do this have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Okay, so think about it. Why, if they've chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their own abominations, why are they offering sacrifices at the temple? If their hearts are that far from God, why are they offering sacrifices at the temple? Well, it's because they think that offering these sacrifices, even though their hearts are far from God, God's somehow going to make up for how far their hearts are from God. It's somehow going to make up for them choosing their own ways. It's somehow God's going to look with love and grace and favor upon them for this spiritual activity that they're doing even though their hearts are far from God. So do you see the deception that's going on here? It's thinking that God will look with favor upon you for spiritual activity that you're doing, quote unquote spiritual activity, even though your heart is far from God. Now let me just make a distinction here. If your heart is far from God and I would guess some of you here this morning, you're feeling like, oh my heart's far from God this morning. But if your heart's far from God and you care that your heart is far from God. And you're here saying, Jesus, help me. Look at how far my heart is from you. I'm not feeling love for you. I'm not sensing your glory. I'm feeling distant from you. Help me. That's a whole different ballgame, right? That's an entirely different thing than what Israel was doing. What Israel was doing is their hearts were far from God and they didn't care. They were there offering the temple saying, God, by your spirit, change my heart here. That's what they were saying at all. They were saying, I'm going I'm to make up for my distance from God by this animal sacrifice I'm offering. Does that make sense? So massive difference here. So some of you this morning, you may be feeling like, oh, my heart's not as near to God as it ought to be. In fact, I, I can feel that too. The difference is, do you care about that? And are you here bringing your heart before the Lord Jesus saying, help me? Change me. Jesus smiles when you say that. He says, I will, I will help you, I will forgive you, I will change you. That's different. Do you see the difference? Tell me you see the difference, okay? All right. So here's the deception thinking that God would look with favor upon them for their quote unquote spiritual activity, even though their hearts were far from God, knowingly, uncaringly. They weren't humble before God they weren't brokenhearted for their sin before God, and they weren't trembling before God's word. Do we ever fall for this deception? Anybody else ever fall for this? I was just thinking Friday night praying about this. And it just, I, I flashed back on some times this past week when I have fallen for that deception. So I would wager that every single one of us here in this room has fallen for that deception. Okay, let me give you a couple of examples for me this past week I I caught myself a couple of times as I was reading the scriptures first thing in the morning and I I was just I was just getting through it so I could get on to what I wanted to do okay now think about that why am I doing it if it's not what I really want to do I'm somehow thinking that you know God's gonna give me more favor or something that day because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing even though I'm not really doing it to seek him to know him to meet him Right, that's deception. I'm not there saying God. I don't even really. I'm not enjoying this now. I'm not wanting to be here. Help me. That's not deception. That's beautiful. He'll move upon me. He'll meet me. He'll change me. But if I'm just saying, okay, how many more chapters do I got to go? Okay, and then I can check my email. I'll be check out what's going on. You know, right? Anybody else struggle with anything near that? Okay, see, that's deception. Or think about it like this. Have you ever gotten up Sunday morning and didn't, ah, Sunday, you know, I don't really want to, I don't really want to go to worship, but, but I'm going to go because it'll make up for how far I am from God. Anybody ever have that thought across your mind? That, you know, being here will make up for the fact that your heart is far from God? This is kind of the stunned silence here, I mean, is it, right, see, that's deception, See, that's deception. Or if, if, you, if you're praying, and it's just like, I'm supposed to pray, I, I pray at this normal time, I'm just going to get done with this, and somehow doing this, even though I'm not really meeting the Lord, I'm not honest before the Lord, I'm not crying out to the Lord, I'm not acknowledging my heart, my, my, my sad heart condition, I'm just getting through this so that I can be done, and I figure my day's going to be better, God will be you know, happier with me. See, those are all ways that we succumb to that Deception. what Israel was doing. She was thinking that God was going to look down with favor upon her because even though her heart was uncaringly far from God, she's doing spiritual activity. And God says, I will not look upon you with favor for doing that. Look at verse 2. He's not going to look with favor upon them for that. Verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one. Not the one who's building the temple with a heart far for the heart far from God, not one who offers sacrifices with a heart far from God. This is the one to whom I will look with favor. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Okay, so think about this. This is huge. This last week, God either has been or has not been looking upon you with favor. Right? Right? Right now, this morning, God either is or is not looking upon you with favor. This is huge. And it's, it's one or the other. That's how grace works. It's one or the other. So think of what the implications are of what it would mean to have God. We're talking about God here. Looking upon you with favor right now. I mean, just think about who God is. God is a being who has always been. So think about what it would mean for this being who has always been without any beginning, who is the, the cause of everything else that exists, to being with that power, looking upon you with favor right now. Looking upon you with love right now. Looking upon you with compassion right now. Think of what that would mean to have God looking upon you with favor. Think of what it would mean to have have the God who rules over everything sovereignly. Every detail in the entire universe is under his control. What an amazing being. Now think about having this being looking upon you with favor and love and care. That's awesome. Think about the being who holds your future entirely in his hands, looking upon you with favor and love. See, if God's looking upon you with with favor, then that means because of Jesus' death on the cross, that means all of your sins are forgiven. That means your present is surrounded by His love and care and mercy. It means that your future is built upon His perfectly faithful promises. You are set. If the God of the universe is looking upon you with favor, you're set. It's like if if you're in a company and the CEO is smiling upon you, you think, yes, you know, my future's set here at this company. God is infinitely more important than that. If God is looking upon you with favor, you are set. So what kind of people does God look to? Read verse 2 again. This is the one to whom I will look. Not doing spiritual activity with hearts knowingly far from God, but he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's who God looks to. Now, at this point as I was just thinking about this passage, I thought of a question that some of you may may be having, and I had it. And the question is, isn't it faith alone? Sola fide is the Latin term. Isn't it faith alone by which we can have God looking with favor upon us? That is, in the Old Testament, wasn't it faith alone in God's mercy alone? Abraham, Genesis 15, 6 that caused God to look with favor upon Abraham. In the New Testament, isn't it faith alone in Jesus? It's more clear now through the cross. Faith alone in Jesus alone that causes God to look with favor upon us. Isn't it faith alone? So, here is, is God like adding some requirements on to faith? So maybe it's not sola fide, faith alone? And the answer is no. What God's doing here is not adding to faith. He's simply explaining the nature of faith. This is what faith involves. Essential to faith is being humble before God. Essential to faith is being brokenhearted for our sin before God. Essential to our faith is trembling in submission and reverence before the Word of God. So here's the question: How then? I mean, it, my my thought is that just praying over this is like I need more humility, and I need more. Appropriate brokenheartedness for my sin, and I need more trembling before God's word. So, so what do we do? What do we do? That's the next question. How can we nurture humility, contrition, and trembling? And see, when you ask that question, here's, here's where man made religion is totally separate from biblical Christianity. Big big huge difference here, because I could just say, okay, let's all now listen, church, be humble be contrite of spirit, and tremble at God's word. Can I get a witness here? Amen? <laughs> Let's pray. And so then you're going to go home thinking, okay, I've got, I've got to be humble. God, I'm not. I'm just, uh, you know, and low, or sad for sin. Or, so you could all leave here relying on your own willpower to pull this off. But see, that's totally against what this book teaches. Jesus made it very clear. What can we do apart from him? Precisely nothing. And so unless I'm leaving you moving towards Jesus, you will never pull off being humble, contrite of spirit, and trembling at his word. Do you feel that? So I want you to be discerning because you will will hear encouragements to just do it. It's like the, the Nike approach to sanctification, right? Just do it, okay? Be humble. Oh, yes, 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 yes. But you've you go home and nothing happens. Or worse, maybe, is you think something happens and then you're deceived in another way. Right? Because you can do this stuff. I've got this thing down. I've got this religion thing down. So how can we nurture humility, contrition, and trembling? So let me give you three steps that apply to this. And these apply to every area of the Christian life. It's not complicated. Since apart from Jesus we can do nothing, where do we start going? Where do we, where do we turn to first? Jesus, you guessed it, He's the, he really is the answer for everything, okay, we turn to Jesus and so here's what I would encourage you to do you immediately turn to Jesus as you are you come to him as you are and you say help me I'm not sensing humility even before you right now and I'm not feeling brokenhearted for my sin and I'm not trembling before your word but I want you to change me I, I need you to forgive me, help me and if you're sincere about that, if you want him to change you, he's smiling. He is infinitely powerful. And he will change you. He will change you. But see, you don't need to have these hearts, attitudes nurtured before you turn to Jesus. You can only have these heart attitudes nurtured by turning to Jesus. Okay, so the, do not pass go, do not collect $200, go directly to Jesus. okay as you are see this is, this is the gospel we are, we're, all we ever bring to Jesus is our garbage it's all we ever bring to the table right and then he transforms garbage into something awesome we just bring our garbage he transforms it into something awesome so that's the first step turn to Jesus as you are and trust him to forgive you trust him to change you trust him to help you he will Second, ask God, pray it, ask God to increase the work of the Spirit on you. So again, you can't change your heart by yourself. The way that Jesus works to change your heart is by the, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you will start to feel the Holy Spirit changing your heart. So you come to Jesus, and then you pray earnestly, and you ask Him. It's Luke eleven thirteen. This is what Jesus taught us. Um, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give, in Luke, the way Jesus says it is, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So ask the Father in Jesus' name. Increase the heart-changing work of your Spirit upon me. My heart will never change apart from the work of your Spirit. Change me. Give me humility. Make me feel how supremely powerful and awesome you are and how lowly I am before you. Help me to feel how I have profaned your holy name through my sin. Help me to see the, the amazing reality. This is the words of the creator of the universe. Help me to tremble before your word. So pray and ask God to do that and he will, he will do it. So we come to Jesus as we are. We trust him. Change us. We ask him to change us. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. And then third, there's another, another step. Pray over scriptures that will stir humility and contrition and trembling. Think about it like this. Um, In your heart, there's like self-sufficiency, which keeps you from being humble, and there's pride, which keeps you from being contrite of spirit, broken for your sin, and there's arrogance in my heart that keeps me from trembling before God's word. There's pride, there's self-sufficiency, there's arrogance in my heart that keep me from being humble, contrite of spirit, and trembling at God's word. So what needs to happen is those need to, need to be cut out of my heart. And what is the sword of the spirit? The word of God. It's the word of God. And so the sword that the spirit uses to cut out from my heart the self-sufficiency that keeps me from being humble, the sword that he uses to cut out the pride that keeps me from being broken over my sin, the sword that he uses to to cut out the arrogance that keeps me from trembling before his word is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And so you pray, God, work in my heart, change my heart. But you don't just pray, there's a sword that you can wield to unleash the power of the Spirit changing your heart. And so you open up and you find appropriate scriptures and you meditate upon them and you pray over them until you feel the Holy Spirit starting to change your heart through them. Let's, let's just look at some examples. Let's start with humility. So how, how do you stir up humility? Well, I found help this week just looking at verse 1. Just thinking about, Thus says the Lord, Heaven, says, the universe, is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So here Israel thinks they're impressing God by building this temple. Listen, Israel. Heavens is the size of throne I need. And I prop my feet up on the earth. So this little temple you're building would be a great place to meet me, but don't think I am like I need a place like that to live in. I sit on the universe. Now, now think about how big the universe is. We've talked about this before, but I just, this was so helpful for me again to remember this week. Remember, Remember how big the Milky Way is? How big is the Milky Way? The Milky Way is 100,000 light years wide. 100,000 light years, the Milky Way. You know how big a light year is? Got you asked. A light year is 6 trillion miles. One light year, 6 trillion miles. 6 trillion miles is 240 million trips around the earth. Okay, one, two, okay... 240 million. That's one light year. The Milky Way is 100,000 light years. And just to... Astronomers tell us that there's at least 50 million galaxies like like the Milky Way in the universe. Heaven is my throne. It's figurative language, obviously, but God is so big... That if you needed a throne to sit in, that's how big it would need to be. So you, you pray over, God, you are that big. Milky Way, two hundred forty million, hundred thousand. And as you pray about that and say, Father, help me to see the reality of who you are. Bring the Holy Spirit upon me and change my heart. I think I'm so awesome. I think I'm so like self sufficient. You are amazing. And I am just, compared to you, I am infinitely lowly. I am nothing before God. I'm not nothing to God by His grace, but I am nothing before God. And I just want to challenge you. Pray over heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a sense in your heart of how infinitely Supremely glorious God is compared to you in your infinite lowliness before Him. Ask Him to do that. I promise you. I promise you, if you mean it, if you come to Jesus, He will. You will sense humility coming into your heart. Second, how about being contrite of spirit? What does that mean? To be contrite of spirit means you have an appropriate sense of your sorrow for your sin. Okay, the way you, you've not trusted Jesus the way He deserves. You've not glorified Him anywhere near the way He, he deserves. And, and I found helpful this week to stir up being contrite of spirit to pray over verse 3. It's a shocking verse. You see, There's been times this week where in, in my Bible reading I caught myself just wanting to get done. Because I had lots of stuff I had to do. It's, just, it's horrifying to think about it. And so I just prayed over, he who slaughters an ox is like one who cuts a man's throat. That's the word I used. Makes it more graphic to me. Just to see, God is infinite goodness and love and mercy and power. He's given me his word to feast on, and he will help me to feast on it. And I'm just like wanting to get through it? Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. And so just forgive me, Father. And so as you you pray over descriptions of sin in the scriptures, God will give you a sense of an appropriate sorrow for your sin. Don't ever think that the longer you walk with Christ, the less sorrow you should feel for your sin. I read a very interesting quote by Spurgeon. I think it was on the Desiring God blog yesterday. And I can't quote it, but he said, the more, something to the effect of, the more mature a believer you are, the more deeply you will sense sorrow for your sin. I think that's absolutely right, because you'll see God more clearly and the more you see his glory, the more it's like, oh. Right? But now you're thinking, okay, so why would I want to nurture feeling bad? <laughs> I'm all about feeling good. Okay? And, and you know, God is about you feeling good too. Um, in fact, far better than you could ever imagine. But listen to what David Brainerd experienced this. experienced This is so encouraging to me. Can we get that up there? David Brainerd? Next slide, I think. I don't know. Maybe not. Is it on there? We're working working on it. Okay. I'll read you the quote. All right. So here's what happened to David Brainerd. Remember David Brainerd, uh, in his 20s, missionary to the American Indians, 1700s. Kept this journal, never intended it to be published. Jonathan Edwards found it in his belongings after he died from tuberculosis, from his exertions in, in, in being a missionary. But listen to what he wrote happened to him. Saturday, October 18th. In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted, and bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. Okay, so he's he's God's giving him contrition, being contrite of spirit here. So he's bitterly mourning, M O U R N, mourning over his exceeding sinfulness and vileness. But then my soul was unusually carried forth in love to God and had a lively, felt, experienced sense of God's love to me. This love and hope cast out fear. So see, that's how it works. Contrition opens the door to enjoying God's love and favor. To whom, let's see, he who is forgiven much... What? Loves much. The more you see how much you've needed to be forgiven for, the more joy and pleasure you'll have in loving God for his mercy and experiencing his love being poured into your heart. So yes, it's good to nurture appropriate sorrow for your sin, and the outcome of that will be a greater experience of God's love poured into your heart through faith in what Jesus has done on the cross. So pray over verses like verse 3 and ask God, Help me to feel appropriate sorrow for my my sin as a way of coming more fervently than to the cross and receiving all the forgiveness and love you have for me. Okay, third example, trembling at God's word. Okay, why would we tremble at this book? Just hold this book up in front of you. Why would you tremble at this book, okay? Imagine, uh, here's the illustration I thought of, see if this works for you. Imagine that you're in a submarine, and the submarine... It's sinking sh- bump, lands you know, two miles down bottom of the ocean and it's not coming up so something wrecked it it's just down there at the bottom and you are there underneath two miles of water but imagine that there was you've heard that there was an escape pod in the submarine and, and you are holding in your hands the one instruction manual for how to work the escape pod <laughs> you, you, you think you might tremble a little bit you think you might read it, right? And like read it carefully and, and do what it says, right? That's how it works with trembling at, at God's word. Because look at verse two. By the way, this is different than what I had in your notes. Okay, I'm taking it a different slant than what I, what I originally put there. Verse two. This is the one to whom I will look to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So, So here we are learning the secret of how to have the creator God of the universe look with favor and love and care upon you. That's infinitely more important than finding an escape pod and getting back to the surface, right? Here it is right here through trusting Jesus and being cleansed through his work on the cross experiencing the work of his spirit making us humble and contrite of spirit and trembling at his word when that's happening the God of the universe is looking upon you with love and favor see we should be trembling at God's word too often I you we can be deceived and just kind of yawn at God's word right so pray over like verse 2 Pray over this. This book is going to give me the way to know God and to be in God's favor, the favor of the Creator of the universe. This is huge. This is huge. And as you pray over that, the Holy Spirit will stir you so that you will tremble. This escape pod is going to be so helpful. You'll tremble at at God's Word. Because here's my challenge what I want to challenge you to do this week isn't just be humble, be contrite of spirit, tremble at God's word, but come to Jesus as you are and say, help me. I need your mercy. I need your death on the cross. I need the work of the Holy Spirit. Here I am, as I am. Help me. And as you do that, he will smile, he will embrace you, he will love you, he will change you, he will help you, he will forgive you, he will do all those things if you mean it. He will, and then you pray, say pour out the work of the Holy Spirit upon me, change my heart, give me a humble heart, give me a contrite heart, give me a a trembling heart towards your word, and then I want to challenge you every day this week, ponder scriptures. I've given you three here but ponder, maybe you have some other ones that are are some of your favorites, but pray over those scriptures earnestly until you feel the Holy Spirit changing your heart. Because you will. You will sense humility rising in your heart, brokenness for sin rising in your heart, trembling at God's word rising in your heart. That's my challenge. And And then come to your home group this week and share what the Holy Spirit did. Share, well, nothing's happened yet. I'm still praying. Oh, it's all right. That happens sometimes. Or, boy, the, the first minute I started to pray, whammo! Well, God does that sometimes too. Okay, God's God. We come. He's sovereign. He's merciful. His timing is flawless. It's always to bring us great good. Sometimes it's quick. Sometimes it's slow. It's always good. But come and share. What did the Holy Spirit do? What is he doing in your hearts? And then pray for each other and ask for this more. And we'll be able to share with each other ways we're seeing the Holy Spirit bringing this change into our hearts. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. Thank you for your mercy, Father, in your word giving us truth that can expose Satan's deceptions. Thank you that through your word, we can see through these deceptions. And thank you for doing that in Isaiah 66. And I pray for me, and I pray for each of us, Lord, that this week, we would each be able to come directly to you, Jesus, as we are, trusting your death on the cross to forgive us, trusting your righteousness to cover us, trusting the work by your Holy Spirit to change us. And that as we pray, And as we meditate on your word, we would each experience the Holy Spirit changing our hearts. We'd have the joy of seeing humility rising up before you, brokenness for sin increasing before you, and trembling at your word stirring in our hearts. So do that, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.